The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 American speeches of the 20th century. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of American public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. In his ecclesiastical polity, that fine old Elizabethan divine, Bishop Hooker, wrote, He that goeth about to persuade a multitude that they are not so well governed as they ought to be, shall never want attentive and favorable hearers, because they know the manifold defects whereunto every kind of regimen is subject, but the secret lets and difficulties, which in public proceedings are innumerable and inevitable, they have not ordinarily the judgment to consider. This truth should be kept constantly in mind by every free people desiring to preserve the sanity and poise indispensable to the permanent success of self-government. Yet, on the other hand, it is vital not to permit this spirit to sanity and self-command to degenerate into mere mental stagnation. Bad though a state of hysterical excitement is, and evil though the results are which come from the violent oscillations such excitement invariably produces, yet a sudden acquiescence in evil is even worse. At this moment, we are passing through a period of great unrest, social, political, and industrial unrest. It is of the utmost importance for our future that this should prove to be not the unrest of a mere rebelliousness against life, of mere dissatisfaction with the inevitable inequality of conditions, but the unrest of a resolute and eager ambition to secure the betterment of the individual and the nation. So far as this movement of agitation throughout the country takes the form of a fierce discontent with evil, of a determination to punish the authors of evil, whether in industry or politics, the feeling is to be heartily welcomed as a sign of healthy life. If, on the other hand, It turns into a mere crusade of appetite against appetite, of a contest between the brutal greed of the have-nots and the brutal greed of the haves. Then it has no significance for good, but only for evil. If it seeks to establish a line of cleavage, not along the line which divides good men from bad, but along that other line, running at right angles thereto, which divides those who are well off from those who are less well off, then it will be fraught with immeasurable harm to the body politic. We can no more and no less afford to condone evil in the man of capital than evil in the man of no capital. The wealthy man who exults because there is a failure of justice in the effort to bring some trust magnet to an account for his misdeeds is as bad as, and no worse than, the so-called labor leader who clamorously strives to excite a foul class feeling on behalf of some other labor leader who is implicated in murder. One attitude is as bad as the other, and no worse. In each case, the accused is entitled to exact justice, and in neither case is there need of action by others, which can be construed into an expression of sympathy for crime. It is a prime necessity that if the present unrest is to result in permanent good, the emotion shall be translated into action, and that the action shall be marked by honesty, sanity, and self-restraint. There is mighty little good in a mere spasm of reform. The reform that counts is that which comes through steady, continuous growth, violent emotionalism, leads to exhaustion. It is important to this people to grapple with the problems connected with the amassing of enormous fortunes and the use of those fortunes. 
both corporate and individual, in business. We should discriminate in the sharpest way between fortunes well won and fortunes ill won, between those gained as an incident to performing great services to the community as a whole and those gained in evil fashion by keeping just within the limits of mere law, honesty. Of course, no amount of charity in spending such fortunes in any way compensates for misconduct in making them. As a matter of personal conviction, and without pretending to discuss the details or formulate the system, I feel that we shall ultimately have to consider the adoption of such scheme as that of a progressive tax on all fortunes. Beyond a certain amount either given in life or devised or bequeathed upon death to any individual, a tax so framed as to put it out of the power of the owner of one of these enormous fortunes to hand on more than a certain amount to any one individual. The tax, of course, to be imposed by the national and not the state government. We'll finish reading after this quick break. Now, back to where we left off. Such taxation should, of course, be aimed merely at the inheritance or transmission in their entirety of those fortunes swollen beyond all healthy limits. Again. The national government must in some form exercise supervision over corporations engaged in interstate business, and all large corporations are engaged in interstate business, whether by license or otherwise, so as to permit us to deal with the far-reaching evils of overcapitalization. This year, we are making a beginning in the direction of serious effort to settle some of these economic problems by railway rate legislation. Such legislation, if so framed as I am sure it will be, as to secure definite and tangible results, will amount to something of itself and will amount to a great deal more insofar as it is taken as a first step in the direction of a policy of superintendence and control over corporate wealth engaged in interstate commerce. This superintendence and control not to be exercised in a spirit of malevolence toward the men who have created the wealth, but with the firm purpose both to do justice to them and to see that they in their turn do justice to the public at large. The first requisite in the public servants who are to deal in this shape with corporations, whether as legislators or as executives, is honesty. This honesty can be no respecter of persons. There can be no such thing as unilateral honesty. The danger is not really from corrupt corporations. It springs from the corruption itself whether exercised for or against corporations. The Eighth Commandment reads, Thou shalt not steal. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the rich man. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the poor man. It reads simply and plainly, Thou shalt not steal. No good whatever will come from that warped and mock morality which denounces the misdeeds of men of wealth and forgets the misdeeds practiced at their expense, which denounces bribery but blinds itself to blackmail, which foams with rage if a corporation secures favors by improper methods and merely leers with hideous mirth if the corporation is itself wronged. The only public servant who can be trusted honestly to protect the rights of the public against the misdeed of a corporation is that public man who will just as surely protect the corporation itself from wrongful aggression. If a public man is willing to yield to popular clamor and do wrong to the men of wealth or to rich corporations, it may be set down as certain that if the opportunity comes, he will secretly and furtively do wrong to the public in the interest of a corporation. But 
In addition to honesty, we need sanity. No honesty will make public man useful if that man is timid or foolish, if he is a hot-headed zealot or an impracticable visionary. As we strive for reform, we find that it is not at all merely the case of a long uphill pull. On the contrary, there is almost as much of a breaching work as of collar work. To depend only on traces means that there will soon be a runaway and an upset. The men of wealth who today are trying to prevent the regulation and control of their business in the interest of the public by the proper government authorities will not succeed, in my judgment, in checking the progress of the movement. But if they did succeed, they would find that they had sown the wind and would surely reap the whirlwind for they would ultimately provoke the violent excesses which accompany a reform coming by convulsion instead of by steady and natural growth. On the other hand, the wild preachers of unrest and discontent, the wild agitators against the entire existing order, the men who act crookedly, whether because of a sinister design or from mere puzzle-headedness, the men who preach destruction without proposing any substitute for what they intend to destroy, or who propose a substitute which would be far worse than the existing evils. All these men are the most dangerous opponents of real reform. If they get their way, they will lead the people into a deeper pit than any into which they could fall into the present system. If they fail to get their way, they will still do incalculable harm by provoking the kind of reaction which, in its revolt against the senseless evil of their teaching, would enthrone more securely than ever the very evils which their misguided followers believe they are attacking. More important than aught else is the development of the broadest sympathy of man for man, the welfare of the wage worker, the welfare of the tiller of the soil. Upon these depend the welfare of the entire country. Their good is not to be sought in pulling down others, but their good must be the prime object of all our statesmanship. Materially, we must strive to secure a broader economic opportunity for all men, so that each shall have a better chance to show the stuff of which he is made. Spiritually and ethically, we must strive to bring about clean living and right thinking. We appreciate that the things of the body are important, but we appreciate also that the things of the soul are immeasurably more important. The foundation stone of national life is, and ever must be, the high individual character of the average citizen. This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes Techno King, John C. Brandy, Fact Checker, Abraham Lincoln, French consultant, Virginia Mitchell, media expert, Favor Obasi E.K., Psychologist Sigmund Freud, Rabbit Hole Advisor, Dr. Mark Parrott. Sound Designer, Guglielmo Marconi. Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy. Videographer, Alfred Hitchcock. Audio props go to Les Paul. Inspiration goes to Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, and Bob Proctor. Also, we have a website, and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But, of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. I mean, I could read the URLs where you can subscribe, support, or leave one of those video or audio messages, but you really don't want me to do that. They're in the show notes. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch, where we consider guests, as well as consider guesting on other people's pods. And really finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Bed Sound and from Piano Background by Nick Salmon Adams, both on freesound.org.